Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Hey, just a heads up, we have a live show coming up. It's in two weeks on July 10th. It's called Brews and News. Uh, Scott, Andy, and Sarah will be at the Chula Vista Brewery talking to Chula Vista Mayor Mary Salas. Other people from Voice of San Diego will be there as well. So you can get your ticket for this event at voiceofsandiego.org slash events. It's going to be a great time, and we'll see you there. Thanks for joining us on the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the editor in chief at Voice. I'm joined by assistant editor and diehard fish fan. Really, had no idea. Andy Keats, hello. Set the gear shift to the high gear of your soul, Scott. <laughs> and Sarah Livia, our editorial lodestar. Wow. Hey, thanks. <laughs> uh, coming up on our show today, we are going to check in on the mayor's race in San Diego. Some new lines have been drawn between Barbara Bree and Todd Gloria. She's uh, she's pushing buttons. She's excited to have pushed this week. Congressman Duncan Hunter is going through some stuff. Ooh, ooh, lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Another congressman, Scott Peters, has something to say about the president and possible impeachment. And also, our man Rye Rivard. He's coming in to break down some of his reporting recently on backcountry wildfire risk. It turned into kind of a serial investigation, really. Wildfire risk and insurance companies trying to deal with it. And so he's going to break down all that he's found there. I think a lot of people have tweeted his story recently about insurance companies with the with some version of the words of, this is fascinating. It really is. It's like a fascinating, you know, climate change is real, but you shouldn't plan for it kind of thing. Uh, in some ways, it was, it was a really interesting conundrum that some of these companies find themselves in, some of these backcountry residents. But first, let's go right into this. Tuesday, we all woke up, 7 a.m., right on the dot. They scheduled it. San Diego City Councilwoman Barbara Bree sent out a mass email, and it promoted her campaign for mayor and asked for contributions. But it was the subject line that caught our attention right away. They are coming for our homes. That was good. Sets the stakes pretty high. (laughs) They are coming for our homes. She was talking about a bill. Well, she was talking about two things, really. A bill, SB 330, which is making its way through um, the whole capital in Sacramento. And that bill, Andy, take it away. I have no idea. I've written it three times what it does. It basically tells cities that they have to make it clear how to build housing and that they can't lower how many houses they plan to build in their city. You got it. That's it? Uh, I mean, after a large number of amendments. Where, where is the part where they come for the homes? Hmm. Well, it did sort of, the overarching goal of it was like suspending local ability to limit the number of homes or to stop increases yeah i mean it does a few other things it so it for five years you couldn't do something which some cities have done like set a more moratorium on new development carlsbad's discussing doing that right now Um, it would suspend provisions that a city might have adopted that require public approval 
overall popular approval of uh, a new housing element, such as the city that, that the city of Encinitas has been going through. So it, it's sort of a uh, big picture attempt to put a, a dome around cities and say that you cannot uh, do these sorts of uh, generalized anti-development maneuvers. But let's be clear, the point, the sentence, they're coming for our homes. There's no provision in the bill that would allow a uh, flop-sweated bureaucrat from Sacramento to abscond with your single-family residence. Yeah, I cover Sacramento, and I'm not aware of any bills in which people take or destroy existing homes. But are they the, is that the they? Because there's another they, right? Young, I think, fair enough. hordes of knife-wielding people. I think when pressed, they would on their heels say, of course I was referring to the Sacramento bureaucrats, but a, a broader way to read it is, of course, the people moving into your neighborhoods who you don't want there. Uh, Oh, so, okay, so I don't, I actually didn't read it that way. I thought you were, were going to refer to the uh, movement of self-declared, self-described yimbies as the they. Yeah, no, th that, they being people who would come in to take your house or to, to take your neighborhood. Yeah, that, right. That's what I think. Yeah, they, that, so there's, there's two they's. There's Sacramento bureaucrats and then there's, these hordes of young people your that don't have a place neighbors. to live, right? Yeah. Or, or not even your potential neighbors. You're just these people who are part of a movement who are saying the thing that is objectionable to you, which is we, we should make it easier to build more housing, well, yeah. whether those are Sacramento bureaucrats or anyone else. Right. But Developers, then, Yimbies, Todd Gloria, the mayor of Mayor Faulkner, et cetera. Okay, they're coming for our homes, though. So let's go to that second part. Take away they. <laughs> We've talked about two. The other part is... So the taking of the house, mm -hmm. or they're coming for it, which I think implies they're taking it away, is that more homes in your neighborhood, therefore, is a seizing of something from you, right? Yeah. It is a, it is a confiscation. And that something is what? What have we settled on? It's that neighborhood character, right? Yeah. Or it's the, the landscape of the feel of the neighborhood. Or your way of life. Way of life. That's what they're coming for. I think so. I think Sarah does not seem to agree that that's what is meant by it. No, I think that's what is meant by it. It's more the idea that in owning a home, you own oh. everything else that I think is giving me the space. The, the, <laughs> the target, the second target of the email was these Yimbies, right? It went directly at the Yimby Democrats of San Diego County, a relatively new club that was formed that endorsed Todd Gloria for mayor and that he has been proud to have had, you know, an endorsement from. And I believe he went and, and the first day he announced his candidacy, he went to the Yimby Dems <clears throat> meeting that night. And so the email from Barbara Bree attacks him for that, mm -hmm. says he proudly wears that, where I don't because they represent corporate interests mm -hmm. and Wall Street interests in our neighborhoods and Silicon Valley investment interests, speculative interests. Yes. And he proudly wears it. I don't. Right. Yes. She was drawing a clear distinction between her and Todd Gloria. And so this, that in mm -hmm. particular, but then the first part as well, 
set off kind of a firestorm within Democratic politics. Uh, the chairman of the Democratic Party in San Diego, Will Rodriguez Kennedy, has been on this show a few times. He wrote, and there's been a lot of subtweeting about this. They won't necessarily yes. call yeah. her specifically out, but he says, How Not to Run for Office 101, impugning the motives of a group of middle working class millennials whose main fight is affordable housing. So that's, he's referring to the Yimby Democrats. Mm hmm. From your multi-million dollar home in La Jolla. Again, no names in this, but he's referring to Barbara Brady. That's where she lives. I think we can decipher that, get through the the code on that. Extra credit for fear-mongering with hyperbolic coded language that reinforces every ism possible. That is another coded way of saying that this is a racist statement, I think. Racist, elitist, classist. Right. They're the... He says every is impossible. Those are the three that jump out to me. The other one that caught my eye was this response from Nicole Capritz. She's the executive director of the Climate Action Campaign, right? That, that, yes. That's her Correct. title. As, as I will scream till I'm blue in the face, she said, housing policy is climate policy. You cannot be a NIMBY and be a climate champion or comply with our climate action plan. And so this stuck out for me because I think this is the, the thing that we haven't quite grappled with as a city, which I talked to her about, which is that the, the climate goals that are set for the city, imagine a very different city, one where people are living in, in more dense ways, using public transit more willingly and, and public transit's more available mm-hmm. and that you, you can't really endorse that without also endorsing this kind of new way of rearranging the city and housing within it, right? Yes. And so what she's saying is that you can't be a climate champion, which is right now a pretty solid insult to a Democrat mm-hmm. like Barbara Bree. And, and yet that's what she laid down. Yeah, I mean, the Climate Action Plan envisioned a world in which um, simply by being passed, it would sort of impose some leverage on council members, community groups, leaders, and saying, if you buy into this idea of reducing our emissions, you must therefore support this type of uh, housing development. And in practice, it just hasn't really played out that way. There have been plenty of people who've been eager to say, no, I support the climate action plan, but I also think that uh, communities need to have control over what developments are proposed in their neighborhood. Um, And so whatever envisioned leverage that plan was supposed to impose has not in practice actually been the case. And what we're watching right now is the the dream Mm. sort of colliding with the reality, right? Yeah, one, well, one way I put it earlier is like I think there's been a sort of a lot of happy talk over the last few years that imagines that Democrats are on the same the same foot on this topic, and that there's a broad agreement around something in resembling Yimbyism or just pro development, and that it being in keeping with progressive ideology, and I think what this fissure shows is is that that's just not the case. There are plenty of people who uh, still count themselves as progressives, still count themselves as Democrats in good standing, who are happy to to continue to refer to developers as uh, enemies of communities. Yeah, I think um, 
Barbara Bree's efforts this week kind of clarified two big things and that that's one of them, that there are major disagreements on the left over housing. And I would say probably education is the other place where there are big fissures. Um, And also, you know, we've been wondering for weeks or months kind of where she was going to go in this race. Is she going to be, you know, a pro-business moderate type that maybe Scott Peters um, would have played where he in this race and and instead she's kind of said well this nimby development coastal issues scooters that's my lane yeah and i think um it's we saw Corey briggs briefly flirt with the mayor's race and i moderate or moderated a debate between him and an affordable housing developer and in the foothills democratic club uh foothill la mesa democratic club and you know there was a lot of obviously democrats there and he got a wild wildly positive reception there when he made a lot of these points about preserving neighborhood character you know this is hardly a settled debate in any way in fact this race may itself be a referendum on that question if it continues this way uh barring what a new entrant like um councilman kersey or somebody could bring into the the framing of the race yeah i mean the thing i would say though is that the frame this this sort of framing and this being something over which two candidates find themselves on different sides is not new to san diego politics in fact absolutely it's, it's not. a it's one of the original tenets of of san diego politics um in that well for instance one of the main topics here that has that has come into discussion is the coastal height limit um the coastal height limit was uh, at one point exempted specifically from SB 330 um, and Todd Gloria who is kind of taking being pitted as the pro-development candidate here proudly said it was my efforts that got San Diego's coastal height limit exempted from this bill and now Barbara Bree is saying uh, that this was in some way hypocritical for, for Todd to exempt one area and not another um, but the coastal height limit passed in 72 was in some ways, the 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 most clear victory of this no growth, slow growth, anti development political uh, uh, route through San Diego politics. Yeah, and in fact, Peter Navarro ran for mayor, almost won in the '90s, along a anti growth, no growth, prevent Los Angelization now plan plant uh, yeah plan. And it, uh, and now he's working for the president. And interestingly, his the uh, opposing political consultant in many of those Peter Navarro races right. was Tom Shepard, who is now running the campaign for one Barbara Bree. Right. Everything comes back around. Right. So Barbara Bree spoke at a, a community planning coalition sort of agency. They're trying to decide whether to uh, endorse that. She made her points um, uh, there about what her, what she's actually thinking about. I'm also running for mayor. Um, I am opposed to the state trying to take control of our local planning process. I've been very clear about this and am, I hope that you will vote tonight to oppose the, these pieces of state legislation and I'd be pleased to work with your group to try to get a council resolution. I don't know that it will be successful. Federal prosecutors this week dunked on Congressman Duncan Hunter this week. A new court filing went into detail about Hunter's alleged intimate relationships with women who aren't his wife. That includes lobbyists and congressional staffers. The court filing said after he was elected to his seat, 
which was once held by his father. He started to spend campaign money on these relationships. Again, go back to the law that we're talking about here. The law is in place so that you can't take money from people or can't take big you know, trips and gifts from them without disclosing it. You, you want people to know who's buying you uh, hotel rooms or something. I think one way to put it is that people often refer to campaign donations as bribes. Right. This is the rule that prevents them from being bribes. Yes. It, were it not for this rule, they would, in fact, be direct bribes. If if a campaign donor was buying you a hotel room for you and your mistress for the weekend in, say, Lake Tahoe, you uh, that would be a bribe. Uh, purely hypothetically. And so, <laughs> so we try not to let that happen with campaign dollars. Right. So it's one thing. It's, we're not talking a moral stand here about you. You know, their family is their family. But when you start to take, you know, campaign dollars, that's where we're crossing the line. So it seems like uh, the prosecutors are trying really hard to force him to deal with them and maybe come to some sort of agreement or, or at least uh, capitulate. Also this week, a conservative former Capitol staffer she worked on veterans issues told a Russian television network, <laughs> a lot of things going on there, that Hunter groped her at a dinner party. She said that happened five years ago. And then also in his own court filing, Hunter attempted to get all of this thrown out because the people who are bringing this case against him are biased and he likes Donald Trump and so they should back off. Yes, he argued that because they attended a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton that the case against him should be thrown out. Got it. All right. So to help us illustrate this, we have decided to do a little acting. Uh, we are going to reenact a couple of the text exchanges that uh, the <laughs> that were revealed in some of these documents. Unless uh, this goes poorly, in which case this will all be cut out. Right. You'll hear this introduction. You can't foresee and... that happening. <laughs> all right. Andy, I nominate you to be Duncan. All right, hold on. I gotta get. You gonna my, do the voice? I gotta get my Jackson Maine voice going. All right. I just want to take another look at you. <laughs> All right, and Sarah, you will be Margaret Hunter in this. Margaret, uh, the, uh, the wife of, of uh, Duncan Hunter Jr. Are you ready, guys? As ready as I'll ever be. All right. This is a text exchange. Text exchange number one. Does my card work, babe? I need money. No, it doesn't. Take petty cash up to $100 off your work card. 1959 pin. Today needs to be work day. We used to do petty cash all the time with Bruce. It was great. No, I'm going to buy my Hawaii shirts. Ours won't work till tomorrow. I need my money, babe. Not today. Do a small pro shop purchase with your work card. Get some balls for the wounded warriors. Golf. <laughs> and cut. Nice job. Very well done. I didn't was know it? you. I don't know you had that in you. That was very impressive. Well, the thing is, any voice like that is fake. So I can do it as well as he can. <laughs> All right, text exchange number two. Again, Andy Keats will play the role of Duncan. Sarah Libby will play the role of Margaret. Action. Campaign card declined to $100 purchase. Short and fun and fun? 
Hey, we racked up 600 minibar and various beg charges at Caesars. Believe it. <laughs> Breakfast was over $200. Duncan and I did not get anything in our room at Caesars. I, I should say I, I did have two bears out of the refrigerator. Uh, wow. <laughs> Duncan and I, you know, sometimes I put texts to my wife with my name and I... Sure. <laughs> Who among us? Okay, another local congressman, Scott Peters. Don't have any texts from him in public record right now. Has joined other congressional Democrats saying it's time impeachment proceedings against the president begin. Peters serves the 52nd District. That's a collection of coastal communities. It also stretches all, all the way out to the La Mesa area, almost. Yeah, it is often just referred to, even by me, in, in, at times as a coastal district. And it's, it really covers a lot of the county. It's got a solid L. Yeah. Um, on Wednesday, in a series of tweets, Peters said the Mueller report included enough instances of corruption that it is the House's constitutional responsibility to being, begin impeachment hearings. He said, quote, this is far more significant wrongdoing even than the Watergate break-in and its cover-up, its subsequent cover-up, which led to Nixon's impeachment and resignation. Impeachment is not about the president's character or policies. It's about upholding the rule of law and defending the Constitution. I remember when the Mueller report came out, he said <clears throat> there, he, he didn't prosecute crimes because he couldn't. And that's what he was implicitly saying is that this, it's it's a president. We have decided that those crimes for a president are dealt with by the Congress. Mm -hmm. And what, what Peters is saying is that we should prosecute them. It's interesting to, coming from Peters just in charting his journey in Congress. In 2012, when he won very narrowly over Brian, Brian Bilbray, that district, which was seen as very purple at the time, immediately became a pickup opportunity or was seen as a pickup opportunity for Republicans. He then won very, very narrowly in 2014 against Carl DeMaio, um, and now has progressed to a point where he's not even getting a, a serious challenge in this election cycle, and has passed up an opportunity to run for mayor that he you know, was not shy at all about saying that he was very interested in and, and thought would be a good job. Um, and so he's now becoming comfortable enough in Congress uh, not only to pass up an opportunity to run for mayor, but also to come out out front and say that he supports impeachment proceedings, which, you know, that it's still not something that's favored by a majority of the country. So he's, he's openly putting himself out there in something that is uh, not particularly popular and in a district that's still kind of seen as a bit swingy. Yeah, and it's still also a little surprising coming from him. He's not, you know, like a toe-the-line progressive by any means he said recently he doesn't support the green new deal so he's not somebody who just kind of knee-jerk goes along with every farther to the left progressive issue all right coming up on the other side of the break voice reporter Ry Rivard joins us to talk about a recent series of stories he's been working on in the east county on wildfire risk and insurance companies and uh, we'll break it all down Escondido Coral Arts will honor the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. They're hosting a celebratory concert with a symphony orchestra, chorus, and soloists on Saturday, July 20th 
at the Center for the Arts Escondido. The concert will feature composer Stephen Sturck's One Small Step with lyrics by Charles Anthony Silvestri. Get your tickets at artcenter.org. California officials seem to agree we are living in a new normal when it comes to wildfire. And in that new normal, climate change will cause fires that are bigger, more frequent than in the past. Ry Rivard is here. He's discovered a related problem. Insurance rates don't take that future into account, or at least the insurance companies say they don't, and they are uncomfortable protecting people who have some of these homes. Ry, you've done a bunch of stories recently on wildfire risk and these insurance companies' unwillingness to protect people from that risk in the East County. You had a stat that I can't quite remember in one of your stories that said that 10 out of the 20 most devastating wildfires in California history came in the last five years. Yeah, destructive is the term, which is different from large. You can have a large fire in an uninhabited area um, that's not considered the most destructive. That would be a largest um, but the destructive ones, they could be any size, but they, like the Oak, there was a fire up in Oakland um, a couple of decades ago that's one of the most destructive, but also relatively small just because it was in an urban area. Is that, be, is that in part because we've built more or there's bigger, more mean fires? Um, I think there is uh, a pretty healthy debate going on about that. But the main factor, I think, is uh, you know there are houses where there were not houses before. A lot of the new construction in the past several decades has been on what's called the wildland urban interface, um, the WUI. Yeah, that's the fun term. Sure, for rolls it. off yeah. the tongue. Yeah. Um, and How many so, documents have you read that have WUI sprinkled all throughout them? <laughs> a, a lot, but they're not as annoying as when people say WUI in casualish Oof, conversations. Sure. Um, but there's a lot of new houses in these fire-prone areas, and that's uh, that's the big part of the problem. And SDG&E, you recently reported, had itself done a rather dire assessment of its own potential risk or what risk it might add to for causing these fires. And uh, in a in a kind of testimony sort of document, it said this blank is is our likelihood of causing another fire in the next 20 years what was how did that come yeah they say we're modeling we're expecting for the purposes of raising a portion of your rates uh to start a or contribute to a catastrophic wildfire in the next 20 years and they define the catastrophic as causing 1.5 billion dollars or more in damage and there's a movement at the state level right now that that would sort of provide for a bailout fund for these utilities because if if this doesn't if this isn't addressed, none of these utilities are going to be able to keep doing business somehow, right? Is that the discussion? Yeah, the term uh, bailout is debatable, um, but it's a way to help cover some of the liability. Um, utilities would put up some money, ratepayers would put up some money. One of the things that's being talked about is extending um, the time that we pay this fee that you'll see on your bill, the DWR fee, this Department of Water Resources fee, that was first imposed, ironically enough, um, back during the energy crisis when um, the electricity market um, almost collapsed again. And so the idea is that climate change is making these summers hotter and drier so that in the fall it's so dry, so hot, and the winds are so strong that it's going to cause more fires. So that's the risk we're watching. Now let's flip to the 
protection or what's being done about that. The insurance companies say, okay, we're out in some cases. Yeah, in some cases. They've, uh, in, in conversations and emails and sort of official statements, um, they haven't been terribly forthcoming about um, how they're deciding to do what they're doing, um, which is, uh, you know, they're increasing rates, obviously, but there's also places where they aren't writing new policies. And that's um, well recognized, I think, and it's been a trend that we've seen sort of go up and down since the major wildfires here in, in 2007. Um, but it's sort of intensified after a several major fires in just a cluster of the last few years. And is there a distinction in those decisions based on new build homes, uh, pre-existing homes? Is you know one thing you often hear described by uh, advocates for continued uh, sprawl development in uh, undeveloped areas is uh, that new homes are built to more serious fire prevention standards and therefore do not prevent the same present the same sort of destructive risk. Yeah, I mean, we even wrote a story last year uh, talking to one of the major consultants for the the home building industry here who said actually homes in fire prone areas um, can help prevent fires because they're less likely to burn. So there is a, a major theory in the building industry um, that enough development will reduce the risk that exists if there's you know just a sort of older home or series of older homes out on their own. The insurance industry, what they're doing about that, they are giving some people some level of credit. I don't necessarily mean rebates, but they're saying, hey, you know, if you're if you have defensible space around your house, if you have fireproof roofs, um, they're more likely to write a policy for you than they than not uh, than than somebody that doesn't have that. Um, but there is some debate at the state level. Um, the there was a recent commission called the Commission on Wildfire Cost and Recovery, where uh, they s- took the insurance industry a bit to task for not doing enough, for not giving people, say, discounts for having uh, fire-resistant homes um, and doing more things to prevent fires around their home. Uh, okay, so what we're talking about is, is it is it too simplistic to say the state is really far in front of the rest of the country in some ways of saying prepare for climate change. Climate change is real. The utilities are starting to say something similar. And the insurance companies are like, we would like to also prepare going forward. We have these like complex formulas. We'd like to assess each person's risk for how to you know deal with protecting them. And, in, and by the way, protecting them is important. They can't get mortgage, mortgages or other financing without insurance like this. So we're talking about whether they can even live there in some cases. And so they're saying we would like to prepare and evaluate the risks specifically. But then the, the state's like, whoa, 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 you're kind of getting ahead of yourself. So there's a couple there's a couple of different things that are going on. There is uh, models, sort of proprietary models or models that are sort of publicly known about that insurance companies use to decide, you know, which specific homes they'll write policies for. Um, and some people have criticized those for being overly opaque or broad. Supervisor Diane Jacob just put out uh, a statement uh, this week um, suggesting that she wants to find out more about, you know, how people in East County in the backcountry are being denied coverage and, and why. Um, but the, the, there is a larger model, which is just looking at an entire company's risk. And that's, that's the one we're sort of, we wrote about. Um, and what they, what insurance companies want to do is they want to say, look, 
the risk of fire now is different on a sort of larger scale. Um, and we want to be able to essentially charge people rates based on fires that haven't happened. Um, fires that we think are likely in the future. Um, Bigger, meaner fires. Um, or fires that, uh, you know, they could be the same size as they used to be, um, but they're now in places where people are living. So the distinction here is instead of looking at previous burn areas and saying you're not in a place that has burned any time recently, therefore your fire risk is X, mm -hmm. this is saying we want to do some predictive modeling and we actually think that despite what's happened in the past, you are now in a likely a burn area. Yeah, I mean, for instance, if you look, uh, this isn't something that the insurance industry used with me, but it's an example uh, that I sort of came up with. If you look at the Laguna Fire, which was one of the big uh, fires um, in the state, which happened in 1970 out in East County, um, insurance industry modeling uh, generally looks at the past 20 years of catastrophic losses. And so, you know, this wasn't a quiet 20 years by any means, but the past five years have certainly been more destructive than the 15 before that um, in, in lots of parts of the state, uh, and obviously not in San Diego. But um, so those so sort of quieter years aren't priced in to the risk that insurance companies um, get to think about in the future. And what they want to think about is they want to look at the Laguna Fire that happened in 1970. They want to look at big fires that happened in the 1920s and say, what if these happened in the future and people are living where they happened? Um, is, is a kind of rough way of talking about the modeling that they're trying to do. So what are the, I mean, at a local level, what are the implications for some of the decisions that are expected to come before uh, San Diego County Board of Supervisors in the next few years around some of these long-discussed uh, master-planned communities in undeveloped areas or lightly developed areas? Well, one, one of the big things to think about for the insurance industry is there's, there's, two, there's two things that we talk about. We talk about availability and we talk about affordability, and those are um, often different things. The insurance industry, they say, if, if things are going to be cheap, uh, then we can't make insurance widely available because um, we can't afford to take losses. If you allow us to jack up premiums, we can make it widely available. But of course, for people that have to pay those higher premiums, it might be available but unaffordable. And so that leads to the sort of local planning um, discussion, which is if we're going to continue to still have catastrophic fires and we're going to allow the insurance companies to plan for them, what is that going to cost people who live in places where they need fire insurance and are, there are as likely to be a fire? Um, and I don't know that we really have dealt with that issue uh, in a real way yet. Um, people have talked about it. We've run op-eds. We've written a few stories that touch on it. Others across the state, particularly in Northern California, where they've just had very destructive fires, um, have talked about it too. Um, but nobody has really reckoned with, do we just shut down construction in some parts of the state? And, it and that is a, something that probably should be considered the former cal fire chief for instance suggested that yeah i think that's that's the deeper even deeper level of this discussion which is that you know are we willing to say like it is a collective responsibility to protect people who want to live in those areas and not just protect them with fire protection engines and such but also with this collective insurance pool and and other things that we might do for the from the government standpoint. I mean, I had a fireman tell me one time that in order to protect a house from a raging wildfire that's coming toward it, you literally have to have a truck at it. You have to have 
one engine at that house protecting it. And you might save that house at that point. And so when you look at the scale of some of these fires coming and the idea that, you know, we're, you know, the, the scale of, of defense that we would have to build to protect these homes in these areas is rather daunting. And, you know, is that a decision that we're just sort of sliding into or have we proactively made the decision that it's okay that they live out there and that we will protect them through all these soft and, and hard ways? It seems like we've been fairly permissive for a long time, and that's why we are now having this huge fight over sprawl development um, in a in a very real way. So, all right. So, Diane Jacob wrote this letter this week. Help me understand what is what is the upshot of her letter? What does she want? Uh, I mean, she's looking out for people in her district that are having like the story we focused on is uh, the town of Alpine. Um, that where they're having trouble, um, people there are having trouble getting insurance. Um, I, she's concerned about, uh, about them being able to get and afford insurance. Um, and, but I don't know, it, it, she wants them to have insurance, but I don't know what the, the necessarily the recommendation would be. Yeah. So is the it, mechanism, would it be fair to, to characterize it as sort of a, a trade-off that she's, that somebody's going to have to decide on, which is either force insurance companies to cover these homeowners and if the risk is ad- accurately priced the way their new models suggest they're just going to have to take a loss on that or allow the fire the insurance companies to increase their premiums and then encourage the government to step in and essentially subsidize that risk well, and it's not just it's not just subsidies from the government necessarily it's in subsidies from other insurers other people that are insured. I mean, um, I think there's some indication, I've been going through some filings recently, that um, we, urban uh, residents, are subsidizing losses in high-risk areas already. Mm -hmm. Um, The question is, is that subsidy going to grow, and is that good public policy? Um, Because people that live in the city that generally, you know, there's not major fires raging through major cities. so your insurance rates are lower, um, but they're maybe not as low as they would be if the insurance companies didn't also have to subsidize people in high-risk areas. That's, that's sort of what insurance is, mm-hmm. but at a certain point, it gets so out of whack that it becomes unfair. Mm-hmm. And that something similar happened with flood insurance, and obviously flood insurance is not something these companies offer anymore. They sometimes administer these funds from states, but states and the federal government are the ones that provide any level of flood insurance. It's kind of something similar. Are we going to decide that backcountry you know, home insurance is something like flood insurance where you just, the government has to yeah, do these, it. Ho- these homes are uninsurable except from the government. Well, and it's happened with earthquake insurance in California, hurricane insurance to some extent in Florida. And to some extent, um, there's the something called the California Fair Plan, uh, which is, it's, people talk about it being the sort of public option, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's not backed up by, it's not subsidized by, um, taxpayers it's it's a pure it's a last resort fire insurance policy that exists actually because of um inner city uh rioting um and then that was expanded to cover uh uh, wildfire risk and so the fair plan is a sort of backstop but it's priced according to risk so it's not subsidized so you're not getting affordable insurance necessarily Rai Rivard has done some great reporting on the backcountry fire risk and and how various levels of government and business are dealing with it. Rai, thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, hey, before you go, we do have some news. We will have another live show. It's coming up. It's in two weeks, July 10th at the Chula Vista Brewery. We have the mayor of Chula Vista, Mary Salas, perhaps another guest. Everyone from Voice of San Diego will be there so you can meet and talk to us. We'll have some audience interaction and games. Get your tickets at voiceofsandiego.org slash events. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. We have lots of newsletters. They come to your email inbox. They uh, summarize what we've done and what others have done that we think you should care about. And if you have listened to this show all the way through, then these are definitely for you. Voiceofsandiego.org slash newsletters. There will also be a link in the show notes. I am Scott Lewis, Editor-in-Chief. Andrew Keats is Assistant Editor. Sarah Libby is Managing Editor of Voice of San Diego. And this show is produced by Nate John, Adriana Heldes, and Megan Wood. We'll talk to you next week.